This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. FBI Director Christopher Wray responded to a question on the security of mail-in voting to the Senate Homeland Security Committee also yesterday, and he said that the agency has, quote, not seen historically any kind of coordinated national voter fraud effort in a major election, whether by mail or otherwise, by the way. Now, the president has ramped up his claims without any evidence, I might add, that widespread mail-in voting would rig the 2020 election against him. And I just want to bring something up. In 2016, if you look at the data uh, regarding exit polling and all of uh, the voters and and how they voted and and mail-in voting specifically and fraud, okay, Um, If you just look at the breakdown, Donald Trump benefited from mail-in voting. Uh, You have absentee uh, mail-in voting from military members, which is largely a Republican voting bloc. And he also benefited from a group that he's not doing as well with this year of 2020 and this time around in the election, and that is seniors. Uh, Joe Biden has definitely pulled some seniors away from Donald Trump. But that voting bloc in 2016, many of which voted by mail, voted for Trump. So Um, You know, he thinks it would rig the election against him. If anything, mail-in voting helped him in 2016. No idea why why he's putting that out there in 2020. Like I said, there's no evidence of it. A couple of days ago on Wednesday, he declined to say whether he would commit to a peaceful transition of power. There it is. People think Hillary Clinton is, is just a sore loser and that Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Adam Schiff, other Democrats that have alluded to the president not going uh, easily, uh, peacefully, are going at all. Well, the, the fact he won't commit to a peaceful transition of power to get out if he loses uh, the election to Joe Biden. Uh, instead, he says, quote, the ballots are out of control. And this is why we need everyone to vote, whether in person or by mail, so, so that on election night in November, we have a winner, whether it is Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Uh, we have a winner by a large enough margin that we don't drag this out and that we don't go to court as we saw it with uh, Gore v. Bush uh, years ago. We don't need that again. Uh, By the way, FBI Director Ray also noted that the agency had seen local election fraud from time to time and that the agency takes election threats seriously, he said, including potential threats through mailed ballots. By the way, local election fraud Um, could be in person, not just mail-in ballots. Uh, This is what he said, quote, certainly to change a federal election outcome by mounting that kind of fraud um, at a scale. Sorry, I've got...
internet uh, issues going on, and I, I've got a lot of tech people calling me, so you're going to hear that during the show. I apologize. I will turn that down during the break. Uh, Ray noted that the agency had seen local election fraud, like I said, from time to time, but he said, quote, certainly to change a federal election outcome by mounting that kind of fraud at scale would be a major challenge for an adversary. He said, adding, quote, investigate seriously. The FBI would any issue with widespread fraud by mail as they always have and will continue to do. Let's rip another. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy told a judge the U.S. Postal Service can't reassemble the hundreds of high-speed mail sorting machines that were taken apart this year. Now, remember, people said in the USPS that they took apart all of these mail sorting machines. And he said, no, we didn't. Now he's saying you can't reassemble them. So, hello, they obviously did, right? This was a project that more than a dozen states allege was intended to undermine the upcoming election. Uh, they felt that Mr. DeJoy and his political leanings and contributions in the past uh, have weighed into helping the president's claim with regard to mail-in ballots and hurting uh, the very institution, the USPS, uh, that is, um, uh, that, uh, Lewis, yes, uh, thank you, uh, that is uh, charged with um, delivering those ballots to the right location. Remember, originally, although he backed up, he was going to reduce uh, not just staffing, but cut out overtime completely, further crippling the USPS from doing its job properly. And you have an election coming up. I have to say, it smells very politically motivated. I don't trust him and this decision, especially with his opinions and his checkbook uh, with regard to the Trump administration in support of the president and that administration. A nationwide injunction that was issued last week in Yakima, Washington, uh, should be amended to acknowledge that the machines can't be put back together. That's what both he and the USPS said in a filing uh, case that went forward two days ago on Wednesday. Now, the machines dismantled under an initiative by DeJoy, by the way, were stripped for parts to improve or repair other machines. Quote, it is therefore not possible to return such machines to service, both the USPS and uh, DeJoy said. Now, remember, DeJoy is a major Republican donor, but that filing uh, was uh, announced and written by both the organization and their boss right now, Mr. DeJoy. The September 17th injunction granted by U.S. District Judge Stanley A. Bastian requires that USPS to reverse disruptive operational changes implemented by DeJoy, including restrictions on overtime and changes to the handling of election mail, such as absentee ballots applications. Well, the order was sought uh, by a group of Democratic state attorneys general who have sued the Postal Service. Bastion is yet to rule on DeJoy's request to amend that injunction. A second injunction was issued against the USPS this week in a suit brought by voters in federal court in Manhattan. And another group of states is seeking a third nationwide injunction on DeJoy's changes in federal court in Pennsylvania, where arguments took place yesterday. And at that hearing, lawyers for the USPS said delays are being reversed and claim states were exaggerating the impact of the changes. Are you kidding me? Let's rip it The sudden uncertainty surrounding the future of the Affordable Care Act could be an enormous political liability for Republicans and opportunity for Democrats. In key states come November, millions of people of in, in crucial presidential and Senate battlegrounds would lose their health care coverage, millions, if the Supreme Court strikes down the law as the Trump administration is urging it to. Now, uh, there is a chart out there in that it shows that the number of people enrolled in the ACA's insurance marketplaces um, or, or are, are covered through its Medicaid uh, expansion. 
These options, by the way, have become especially important over the last six months, right? Millions of Americans have lost their jobs. Millions of Americans thus have lost their insurance provided by their employer due to the COVID-19 pandemic. More than a quarter of non-elderly Americans have a pre-existing condition that insurers in the individual market, by the way, could refuse to cover without the Affordable Care Act. And I'm not just pulling this uh, out of my sleeve. This is per the Kaiser Family Foundation. Republicans paid a steep electoral price for trying to repeal parts of the Affordable Care Act in 2017. The lawsuit against the health care law, if it succeeds, would boot even more people off of their coverage and would undo even more of the regulations from the Affordable Care Act. Now, there are several vulnerable Republicans, including Senator Susan Collins, who I think's out. Martha McSally, I think's out. Cory Gardner, I think's out, by the way. And I'm not just saying that because I want it. I'm saying that because when you just look at the numbers, uh, they are in purple states that expand. Arizona's not as purple, but Mark Kelly's got it has had a double digit lead over her sometimes. And the broader fight over the Supreme Court has made it impossible to ignore uh, those stakes. Uh, and uh, then lastly, Democrats are preparing for the apocalypse scenario of backdoor elector swaps, and their lawyers are preparing to challenge any effort by President Trump to swap electors chosen by voters with electors selected by Republican-controlled legislators. And one of particular concern, the state of Pennsylvania, GP, controls the state house there. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's written. The headlines coming up. Our great guest, all three of them, and you right after this. Don't go away. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Friday. How you doing? Welcome or welcome back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome back and thank you for joining us, whether you're listening or watching. I have not one, not two, but three great guests. And um, I really, really love uh, what we're going to be talking to our guest about today. Uh, and, and I want my guests to know why, if if uh, our pub- shared publicist hasn't told them that yet. Uh, we're going to be joined in just a moment by, not like I said, one, two, but three great men and co-authors of How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In. A Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian share leadership lessons from the life of Moses. It's going to be released on October 20th. It's available right now on Amazon.com for pre-order. Um, we'll get to those authors in one sec, but I wanted people to know Uh, Many of you know, um, I have a Jewish parent, I have a Christian parent, and I have a Muslim husband. So uh, this uh, actually uh, tugs at my heartstring. My kids aren't millennials yet, uh, but definitely uh, the product uh, of, uh, uh, at least culturally, three religions. More than a pleasure to have these three gentlemen and co-authors with us. Rabbi Mordecai Schreiber, Dr. Iqbal J. Unis, uh, Unis, excuse me, and Reverend Ian Case Punet. Uh, more than a pleasure to have you with us, Rabbi. I'm sorry, Mark? Panette, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, more than a pleasure to have the three of you with us, Rabbi, uh, Doctor, and Reverend. More than a pleasure. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, and thank you for taking the time on this Friday. 
Well, you could have saved us all a lot of trouble and written this book yourself. Um, so <laughs> you really, you're really kind of letting us down to find out that somebody else should have been doing this, but hadn't been. So <laughs> we only wrote it because you, you know, were asleep at the switch. So we finally knocked one out for you. So well, I can tell by the caller you're the reverend, and uh, we will be seeing we, all the other gentlemen. Ian's, Ian's oh. fine. We, we just prefer okay. Ian. That's fine. Once you speak, first of all, Reverend, why don't you start it off? Um, whose idea would the it was this? And, you know, because at, at first it sounds like a joke, right? A Muslim, a Jew, and and, and a, a reverend, a Christian walked into the bar, a bar. Uh, but wh whose idea was it and why? Well, Dr. Yunus gets credit for this. So uh, he had written a, a small version um, of the of the concept of talking about Moses in, in you know understanding him from a Muslim perspective in terms of leadership, and he contacted me and asked whether I might help you know sort of broaden the appeal of that a little bit. And I said I thought the best way to do it would be to also then bring in a rabbi so that we could all be talking about it from you know slightly different positions, but also look for that unified voice. And that we decided to write it as just one voice. So you can't really ever tell who is saying what in the book. Dr. Yunus, I'm wondering because you had started with the idea and you had started with the idea of Moses, um, uh, why you chose uh, Moses, because there are a lot of uh, great uh, leaders and uh, biblical characters or, or prophets uh, that are shared uh, by all three of the big three, uh, you know, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Doctor? Well, um, one obvious thing is the uh, community, the, the link between the three religions is the life of Moses, uh, the lawgiver and uh, uh, in, the, in the Quran itself, uh, Moses is spoken of much more than any other of the prophets. Uh, his story, his narrative is covered in several chapters over and basically in different uh, parts of his life. Uh, that's one kind, one idea. The other idea was if you look at it really from a leadership perspective, Moses' life is much more detailed in terms of the specifics specific actions, a specific uh, role he played at different times in life that you could pick up and turn them into lessons that are uh, timeless and a piece to the contemporary. Uh, and my uh, personal interest in looking at Moses that, at the, in, to begin with was really that, to look for leadership, leadership lessons in the story of Moses. Uh, the reason I do that is believing that people who are exercising leadership would have a greater appreciation for it if they could tie it to their basic belief systems. And that's where Moses' life comes in. Thank you. Um, Rabbi, um, you know, let, let's talk to a Jewish man about, a, a you know, a Jewish man, Moses. Um, what was your response, um, you know, to, to this idea? And wh what did you think could be brought to the table in modern day um, in learning about, you know, a, a, a somebody who was such a great leader spiritually and otherwise as Moses. Rabbi? Yes. Uh, I've always been aware of the great divide that we, of the three religions, managed to create among us, which led to a lot of unnecessary wars and bloodshed and suffering. And as I'm getting older, it's become so clear to me 
that we need a common denominator to bring us together, a unifier. Yes. Divisiveness is uh, lethal for today's world, but we see it everywhere, not just in the United States. I see it in my native Israel. People are very divided. And uh, just using two examples, it's, it's everywhere. And here we found a, a historical figure that nobody can challenge, except that today I had a posting on Facebook and somebody told me that this book is a Jewish plot. So I, I wrote him back and I said, yeah, you know, uh, blame the Jews. Uh, I, uh, I answered him, I said, in, I said to him, when in Arabic, doubt, blame the Jews. Yeah. I said, ya Habibi, ya Habibi in Arabic mean, my dear one, you know, don't be so cynical. Let's have a sulcha. Sulcha in Arabic means what? Iqbal. Make, you know, make nice, make peace. Enough already with this nonsense. Right. So I'm, I'm getting a lot of reactions on LinkedIn and uh, Facebook that are very supportive and very excited about the book. But I also get the other side. Yeah. People who think that, you know, who, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do this? Well, somebody gives me the right. Yeah. Well, and uh, uh, Reverend, I wanted to ask to uh, to that point that, um, you know, your your book I read is quote, meant for sincerely spiritual but church-resistant Bible readers. Would you agree with that, Reverend? And if so, why? And why do you think the the book would appeal to uh, th that group within oh, the Oh, we designed it that way. Because there's, especially with regard to millennials, the idea of, I mean, I think it's kind of an obnoxious term, but people refer to the unchurched, which I, I don't care for, because I think actually church is everywhere, and people right. get all sorts of church, you know. But um, it, it's really for the bookstore faithful and the people that like to read it in their own terms and in their own way. And that was our lens from the very beginning. In fact, we make several nods um, to atheists and agnostics in the book because we still think that these lessons are timeless and that they're beneficial regardless of whether you have any faith at all. Um, and and so it isn't just a matter of that. But, uh, but then again, I... As I just learned today, it was a Jewish plot, so it changes everything. <laughs> I don't. Isn't everything an over, a Jewish plot? People well, used to say that when, when well, Jews run the world, you know, we own everything. It's, we, it's we not just that, Rabbi. There's a world, Jewish world order to th overthrow yeah. the world, right? Yes, we have private meetings. There's a Zion, you know. Yeah, they're sitting there plotting. I know, yeah, but you know. Uh, yeah, we're going to take a break. I'm sorry. I hate interrupting a, a rabbi, so forgive me. God forgive me. Uh, we will be back with our three wonderful guests uh, and this wonderful book right after this. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. back with our guests. There are three authors, co-authors of How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In. A Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian share leadership lessons from the life of Moses. By the way, like I said, you can pre-order that book. Go now and pre-order it. I'm going to get this book. I want it. Uh, go to Amazon.com. And the release, if you like to venture out with your masks and social distancing in stores, and you should, will be on October 20th. But in the meantime, pre-order now. Amazon.com. Uh, 
uh, do as I do and say today. Uh, more than a pleasure, like I said, to be back with Rabbi Mordecai Schreiber, Dr. Iqbal J. Yunus, and Reverend Ian Case Panette. Uh, thank you, uh, gentlemen, for holding uh, there and uh, for, for, for being with us today. Um, one of the things that I noticed, um, you know, from, you know, reading snippets and, you know, press releases on the book is that it attempts to synthesize the religious views of Judaism, Islam, Christianity into one unified, harmonious voice. Uh, and I love it, singing a, a single hymn. Um, right now, we're very divided politically. Uh, we're divided uh, socially. Uh, we're divided along lines of color, it would seem. We have some racial imbalance and certainly some anger over uh, racial injustice. Um, how, how, how do you feel, um, uh, doctor, uh, that, you know, that people today can take that uh, unified message, if you will, from Moses in, in those times into modern times like today? Well, um, first of all, as far as the people who believe in either in, in, in any of these three faiths or other faiths would uh, want to look at it from the belief point of view in the sense that they want to go back and see, okay, where is the divine message coming from? If I believe in a divine, where is the divine message coming from? And the divine message comes through divine messengers. So the natural the next question would be, okay, who are these divine messengers and which of these divine messengers can I easily access? And the most, the easiest uh, messengers access in the case of, of the interaction of these two religions is of course Moses uh, uh, as, as the uh, beginning uh, or you know, being of the, the law that, uh, the divine law that uh, was revealed to him. Now, uh, the, how, how does it relate to the times that we are in? That is the question that uh, people would ask. Well, I mean, the answer would be that we need to realize that even though times have changed, we haven't changed in terms of the human nature. The human nature is, is there. And, you know, there are a few changes that are in, impacted, impact of social uh, environment that we're in. But we need to realize that the human nature and the, and the lessons that we could learn from the uh, quote-unquote ancient are really timeless. And our job is to look at those lessons and see how we can apply them in the circumstances that we are in. But the lessons themselves are timeless. Interesting. Um, a rabbi, um, I want to talk about the Middle East and specifically peace or lack thereof in the Middle East. Um, uh, my understanding is that the, the, the three of you are on the same page in the sense that the new initiatives with regard to peace in the Middle East actually fall short of, of solving uh, the main problem. Uh, obviously, one of, if not the main problem, is uh, statehood for the Palestinians. Um, if, if, first of all, I, I wanted to, I'm not, you know, trying to just target you and get your opinion on it because you are the Jewish man at the table. You did say you're from Israel. Um, and uh, I, I was wondering, do you think that your book and, and this conversation of unity could move the needle um, on the conversations that need to be had in and surrounding the Middle East, the Middle East peace process, and specifically Palestinian statehood? Leslie, from your mouth to God's ear, I, I, I hope you're being heard, because I pray every day 
that at long last, the children I grew up in Haifa, beautiful city on the Mediterranean, Arab children, Christian children, because the British were there, we was a British uh, mandate before the state started. I was there, I remember it. And us Jewish kids born there, first generation natives, we got along fine and everything was great. And then everything fell apart. And to this day, it's over 70 years later, we have drifted away and you know, business agreements with Bahrain and with the Emirates, let alone uh, our advanced arms agreements, is not a solution Correct. to our human, human problem. Because like the doctor said, we all have the same human nature. We all have the same abilities. Nobody's superior, nobody's inferior, you know. And particularly a little country like Israel, surrounded by an ocean of Islam and Arabs, etc., must find a way to integrate itself from a social, cultural, and, and, and any point of view, and become part of the Middle East, and let the Palestinians have their own state, because there's room for a Palestinian state, there's room for, for Israel. And unless and until this process begins, everything else is simply barking up the wrong tree. I want to jump in and just ask one more question, Rabbi, if you don't mind, just to that point. Um, I've been to Israel, I've been to Haifa, I went to McDavid's in Haifa. And, uh, I, and uh, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you something funny you'll like. Um, I, was, I, was just, uh, to I was told when I was there um, that in Haifa you work, in Jerusalem, you pray, and in Tel Aviv, you play. Uh, when I was when I was in Israel uh, years yeah. ago, but but to your point, um, it, you know, regarding uh, you know human beings and everything you've said, you know, just 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 absolutely beautiful. We read a lot of polls. You hear a lot of things that people say uh, in Israel. Is your I I experience that now in 2020, Israelis are divided on this because? I hear a lot of people talking like you in all different generations regarding Palestinian statehood. You know, when I was in the early years of the state, we had great goals and great ideals. And our, even our founders, our great leaders talked about peaceful coexistence with the Arab world. And what happened over the years our population, there were only half a million Jews in Israel in 47. Now there are six and a half million. The, the, the vast majority of what today we call Israelis either came from the former Soviet Union, when they never lived under democracy, when they don't understand the nature of coexisting with other people. And the other main group came from the Arab world, where most of these countries didn't, didn't have democracy either. So we have a very serious political cultural problem in Israel that there is a distrust of democratic institutions, there's a distrust of people getting together. There are misconceptions about you can you can make peace with the Arabs. The Arabs only have one objective, and that is to throw us into the sea and get rid of us. And nothing is further from the truth. It's yeah. not the truth. 
And so I'm not the only one who says that. But unfortunately, the majority of Israelis still are not, haven't, haven't gotten there yet. They're not right. there yet. And that's a <laughs> yeah. problem. Uh, very well not said. Uh, very well said. Uh, Reverend, I wanted to ask, uh, because all three of you um, are men of a, a different religion, and, and cer certainly um, all three of you, I would imagine, have uh, better theological chops than the, uh, you know, the average, uh, you know, uh, non-religious uh, leader. Um, did you learn anything about Moses that maybe when you were researching and writing this book with these two gentlemen that you didn't know before this great book, How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In? I, I wouldn't have taken on the project if I wasn't interested in learning. <laughs> so ah. uh, that's a goal, a daily goal. And I think what you have here already, and just in, in hearing this conversation, here you have an, a man who was born in what became Israel. So he's the rabbi's older than Israel. Dr. Yunus was born in a part of British India um, before it was Pakistan. So he's older than Pakistan. And I'm only older than you. <laughs> That's the only thing I'm older than. And so the whole, the whole experience is about learning. And I think that if I can, I mean, I think that in finding that it wasn't a matter of like, we had to pretend we didn't believe something or we had to cut things off. And it wasn't really a very difficult negotiation. I was coordinating a lot of the writing. Um, and what was interesting is I would often forget who wrote what. And I'd have to go back to the title on the email to see whether it was from Dr. Yunus or from Rabbi Schreiber. Interesting. I, uh, Reverend, hold that thought. We have a break, but I'm coming right back to you. You have the floor, and you will have it on the other side of this quick commercial break. I'm trying to give all you guys uh, equal time because uh, I'm I know I'm just I'm very fascinated, uh, you know, by this. Uh, I, I really, really um, want people to get the book. And like I said, I'll tell you more about it, and we'll be returned in a moment with our guests. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. back. Welcome back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we go back to these three great gentlemen who wrote a fantastic book, which you need to pre-order and pre-order now on Amazon.com. It'll be released on October 20th. It's entitled How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In. A Jew, a Muslim, and a Christian share leadership lessons from the life of Moses. Like I said, we're joined by Rabbi Mordecai Schreiber, Dr. Iqbal J. Hunis, and Reverend Ian Case. Panette. Uh, Reverend, thank you for holding. Welcome back, uh, all three of you. But Rab uh, Reverend, you have the floor, I said, and I asked you and you were uh, talking about things that you learned about Moses in research and, and writing this book that maybe you didn't uh, know before, and especially maybe looking at him right. with regard to today's political, social, uh, and racial imbalance. I think what, would, uh, what may even be, I'll even take it a step further and say, I don't think most people who are non-Muslim realize how much of the of the Quranic narrative follows the biblical narrative. And they may imagine all these different things that they think they've heard that are in the Quran and, and that it's all about, you know, murdering people and it's all about, and and there are 
abuses that go on for all religious texts, right? That these are our, our, our religious traditions are are often used against ourselves and people will pull them out and yell at us with chapter and verse. I think that was the most beautiful thing was to see just how close and when they were different, when the when the when the the Hebrew narrative of Moses differs from the Muslim narrative or the Quranic narrative of Moses, it's so informative. It's so interesting to see where the points, most of them just touch, right? They just were like right along, almost like very parallel. But when they diverge, they diverge for the most interesting reasons, which is part of what I think is the most interesting reading about the book for anybody who would want to understand the Moses narrative in a more universal context. That's uh, that's awesome. Yeah, I like I like I like that. And one thing, having come from two different backgrounds and marrying into another, I definitely have seen a lot more similarities than differences. Yeah. But you know, differences make the headlines, right? And not the similarities. Um, a, a doctor, I I wanted to ask you similar. Um, you know, certainly, you know, you know your faith uh, of Islam. You know, having you know embraced Islam, and I imagine being brought up in that. Uh, being in British India and now Pakistan, um, did you um, find maybe similarities or did you find some things out about Christianity or Judaism that maybe you didn't know in researching and, and writing this book with your uh, two co-authors, uh, you know, surrounding Moses and, and the theme for the book with regard to Moses and millennials? Well, definitely. Uh, there's a lot that I I, did, I thought I knew, but I didn't know. Um but one important point I think uh, we need to make is this, and I think the, bo the book makes that point and we all agree on that point, that regardless of the events and circumstances and actions and things like that, it is the lessons that we need to focus on. So while the narrative may differ a little bit, you know, with this detail or that detail and this happened at this time and this happened at a different time, we need to focus on what is the lesson in there? What is the message? the divine message that is coming through. And so if you look at it that way, then you don't think of these as differences. You think of these as simply different narrations, which are actually tying the same thing. They, are, they, are, they have the same thread running through them. For example, right. we talked about the, uh, you know, the, the difference of what was the age of Moses when, you know, as, as, as Christianity describes it in, his, in the Quran, Quran doesn't mention the age, but what does it matter? because the lesson is the important thing. So I, I guess that's a very important lesson that we should learn. And if we always look at the divine messages uh, from that perspective, what is the lesson? What is the divine teaching? Instead of focusing on the details and little this difference with that difference, we'll be all better off. Rabbi. Uh, in the fourth chapter, I believe it is, um, of your book, How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In, um, uh, there is a discussion of a ruthless, overbearing tyrant versus a humble servant leader. And I thought it was very interesting, especially when we have an election coming up in November and how uh, our current president is viewed by some, how Joe Biden is viewed by some. 
um, how leadership in general here and throughout the world are viewed by some uh, versus the masses, we the people, uh, the voters. Um, uh, I, I, I would love you, uh, uh, sorry, it's chapter three, my apologies, not chapter four. Uh, I would like you to speak to that, Rabbi. The, the book isn't out yet, so we haven't read it yet. So we're looking forward <laughs> to reading the book when it comes out. <laughs> okay, Reverend. Uh, Rabbi, chapter three, which you didn't know, uh, talk to us about that ruthless, overbearing tyrant yeah. versus that humble servant leader. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's a wonderful concept. It's as old as time. One of my favorite uh, figures in history is Ab Abraham Lincoln, the most one of the most admired humans that ever lived, and he was humble. He was modest, and uh, I know that in the African American community, the concept of uh, servant leader is very prominent, very prominent, and we all need to learn from it, because oppressed people, and African Americans certainly have been oppressed, and we Jews also have been oppressed. We were slaves in Egypt in the time of Moses. And we, I don't need to tell you about the Holocaust. So oppressed people have a sensitivity and an awareness and great leaders do too. And those who were born with a silver spoon in their mouth and never, never saw, never, never suffered any want or any, those people cannot understand the human heart. So this is the key. Uh, I'm not saying that Biden is, is the greatest leader in the world, but I will say one thing about him. He's all heart. I love that. That in, in itself is a divine gift. Okay, he, you know, Roosevelt, um, Lincoln, etc. These were giants. Uh, you know, we don't get giants very often, but, but we all need to be human. Otherwise, forget it. Absolutely. Reverend, on that point, speaking of being human, some would say we also need to be humble. Moses w was humble. And uh, you guys talk about in chapter four, this is uh, chapter four, I had my uh, chapters uh, reversed, uh, Moses and the miracle of humble leadership. And I think that's essential today uh, when we have so many leaders, not just our own president, but throughout the world who certainly have forgotten humility. Reverend? Well, this is where actually a very direct tie-in to the millennial piece of the book is there There was no sense of autocracy. He was not, even though he was given the agency to do it that way, he saw his role as a unifier. He saw that it would benefit everybody if he brought in his brother, if there were other people, if he got a buy-in from the community when they went to Egypt. And this was the idea of building something, not just owning it, but building something that they could all lead together, which would then make it easier for him to pass it along when his turn at the top was ending. And that's kind of the beauty and why we think that relates a lot to the that millennial understanding of building coalitions and having companies where there's a shared understanding and not just this top-down authority uh, always saying, well, this is what you have to do if you want to earn your money this week. But this is why we're doing what we're doing. This is this is the this is the cause behind our success. And that's what Moses led with. Awesome. Doctor, quickly, because I want to get both of you uh, uh, in addition. Sorry, my new puppy. Uh, doctor, um, uh, you talk in, um, the three of you uh, write in, about in chapter six, Moses and leadership lessons learned in times of tyrants. Uh, doctor, if you could just name one lesson, because I don't want to give the book away, I want people to buy the book, uh, because we certainly have a lot of tyrants out there. One lesson uh, learned uh, from Moses and leadership in a time of tyrants. Okay. Uh, one lesson. 
uh, for example, uh, and again, it applies to the time of tyrants, it applies to all times, is the idea of justice, the idea of giving the other side uh, an opportunity to explain. And it, it may seem very little, uh, you know, when you read it, but when you think about it, when uh, Moses went away and the, the, the Israelites, you know, you know, their story of the calf, the golden calf and so on. And when he came back, he was very upset because people worshiping this, this, uh, uh, this, uh, this statue. And everybody knew, at least in the Quranic version, who was responsible for this. That was a man called Samri. And one would think, okay, so it's easy to judge, you know, punish him. But Moses asks him, what is your story? The idea that you do not judge people before you give them a chance to to present their side of the story. This idea of justice, even in the, in the face of such difficulty, is very important. Actually, wonderful. Uh, Rabbi, um, I want to very quickly, um, uh, chapter five, Moses, oh, we have 30 seconds, so we uh, we are out of time. I love, I love you guys. I love you guys so much. I really do. You're awesome. Uh, the book is How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In. It will be released October 20th. It is available for pre-order now. Please get it, pre-pre-order it on Amazon.com. You can get hardcover or Kindle edition. And doctor, I lived in Pakistan. I lived in Karachi for four months and I adopted my son from the ED Foundation and I know the EDs quite well. And I know that you, a Pakistani, uh, would know them as well. Uh, so I, I want to say uh, thank you uh, to, to everyone. I should have said hello, assalamu alaikum and shalom in the beginning. I don't know goodbye to all of you and thank you in all of those uh, the, 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 the uh, languages. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are the toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS chemicals are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. These toxins have poisoned our water, making it dangerous to drink and unfishable. And State Representative Ryan Berman is making it worse. Berman voted to cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. And the damage doesn't stop there. Just months ago, Berman sided with the big oil company that caused the largest inland oil spill in American history, voting to let them drill a pipeline under our waterways. Ryan Berman's record is toxic for Oakland County. Vote Julia Pulver for representative by November 3rd. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are the toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS chemicals are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. These toxins have poisoned our water, making it dangerous to drink and unfishable. And State Representative Ryan Berman is making it worse. Berman voted to cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. And the damage doesn't stop there. Just months ago, Berman sided with the big oil company that caused the largest inland oil spill in American history, voting to let them drill a pipeline under our waterways. Ryan Berman's record is toxic for Oakland County. Vote Julia Pulver for representative by November 3rd. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate.